All right, Habakkuk chapter uh, 3, this is the conclusion to this short um, prophecy, a Habakkuk writing. Let's read it together in verse 17 to 19, just three short verses today. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then a postscript to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray together and ask God to bless our time thinking about these three verses. Father, uh, by your spirit, we pray that you would teach and instruct us. I'm, Lord, myself just filled with a sense that if I can't get to the three verses that we just read in this three-chapter book, then my knowledge and understanding of this book is all for naught. I want to get to this place. I want to get to this level of trust in you every day of life. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we seek to understand and apply your word. And, Lord, in a, with the flesh that we have with, in a world that we're in, where it's so hard to hear the voice of your spirit saying, I am enough. We want to receive that, Lord, as we think about you and your word today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Well, if there's one thing we love, we love a good transformation story. Uh, we love to inspect the before and after photo. You know, show me what the house was like before and what it was like after the remodel. Show me what the car was like before and what it was like after it was fully restored. Show me what a person looked like before and then what they look like after that makeover or that time of intense exercise or dieting or whatever it might be. We love the before and after transformation uh, reality. Well, Habakkuk, in this book, writes us a song that tells his story of transformation. Here at the end, we are reading of his full conversation with God. Um, we find a man that was resolved to trust God no matter what. That was his destination. That's where Habakkuk arrived. This, these three verses are his after photo. God has told him, in chapter 2, verse 4, that the righteous will live by their faith, and now Habakkuk is walking by faith. But my conviction, and part of the reason I taught the book of Habakkuk to our church, is because I believe that this is still true today, that the righteous are only going to be able to make it today through and by a life of faith. Now, fortunately, Habakkuk didn't just go through this experience, this conversation with God privately and then allow it to be erased from the minds of history. He pulled out his guitar, or it says stringed instrument there at the end of verse 19, and he composed 
this beautiful song. And what we just read today, these three verses, are the bridge of the song, the transcendent part of the song, where the rhythm changes, the pacing changes, and the lyrics are more beautiful than anything that has been said up to this point in the song. The lyrics demonstrate a radical trust in God. Habakkuk has gone through stages now in this conversation. He's told God of the problem as he sees it. God has answered him in a way that even confused Habakkuk and made the problem bigger in his mind. But then he waited for God's answer. And God showed him what the future would look like and that he would judge and discipline the unrighteous and that every loose end that Habakkuk saw would be tied up by God. Habakkuk then had a vision of God. He saw who God was. He had a grand experience with God. But all of that, as I said in my prayer, would be for not unless he came to the point of then saying, so I will rejoice in the Lord. I'm gonna trust God no matter what. He had to take this step, and it's a step that you and I need to take as well. So let's think about the trust that Habakkuk landed on here in these three verses. The first thing I want you to consider about his trust is that it was a trust that enabled him, number one, to endure devastation. It enabled him, number one, to endure devastation. Look at, again at what he said in verse 17. He said, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit, Food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. And then the first word, word, word of chapter 18 or verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Now what I want you to know is that none of the things that Habakkuk listed were hypotheticals in his mind. He believed that every one of these things would happen because the ravages of war were coming. With Israel's men engaged in battle and the families torn apart by forced relocation, the land would inevitably lie barren and these would be the results. It wasn't a lack of water or drought that would cause everything that Habakkuk listed. It would be the fallout from an invasion, the fallout of war. The usual social order that allowed people the time and space and peace and protections to go plow their fields and tend to their crops. It went away once Nebuchadnezzar came in and attacked with his Babylonian armies. And the luxury of wine would be one of the first things to go along with Israelite staples like fig trees and olives. And the cattle and the sheep and the goats would cease producing meat and dairy to sustain the nation. God had told Israel that he was bringing them to a promised land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. But Habakkuk now knows that the milk and honey are going to be stopped up because of the judgment of God upon them for that period of time. The abundant flow of God's good earth was about to cease. And as Habakkuk is listing all of these things that are about to befall Israel, it fascinates me because he does not present at all as a man who wants to bury his head in the sands of oblivion. Like, don't tell me what's coming. I don't want to know what's coming. He presents more like an accountant who is counting every last 
thing that will occur to him. He's considered the far-reaching implications of this war. And he's ceased holding out hope for fruit and flocks. And he knows that it's going to affect even his own life. His basic necessities would evaporate. But the thing I want you to see is that when Habakkuk says these things to God, he is well past the point of complaining to God about them. This is the portion of the song that is confident, that's secure, that's resolved before the Lord. He's mirroring an apostle who came many years later, Paul, who to the Philippian church said in Philippians 3 verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To me, as Habakkuk counts these atrocities, he's accepting reality. To me, it's like he's passed through the stage of denial and anger and bargaining and depression, and now he accepts reality. He's not in denial for a moment. It's like War was at the door knocking, and instead of running inside and acting like he didn't hear someone knocking at the door, he opens up the door completely and says, come on in. I know everything that you're about to bring upon us. Habakkuk is going low so that he can go high with God. I'm sure you've seen one of those big trampolines that lots of families have for their kids, you know, maybe in the backyard and I've heard that they're the number one cause of uh, injury amongst children uh, because of all the crazy things that kids like to do on a trampoline. But imagine a child standing on the center of one of those trampolines. Uh, No momentum, they're not moving, they're not jumping, and then at a standstill trying to jump in the air. They'll catch a little bit of air, but they won't catch the kind of air that they could catch once they begin to get that momentum. The further down you go, the further high up the trampoline will toss you. Habakkuk is doing that same thing. He's going to go up with God, but not until he's gone down into reality. And as Habakkuk is saying these things, I also want you to know that not only is he not complaining, but he's also not presenting like a victim. If you think about it, Habakkuk could have taken that tone. He was a prophet. Probably he was also a priest. And every indication is that he had been walking with God. He had been faithful to God. The Babylonian invasion, in other words, wasn't his fault. He was a righteous person but he was going to have to suffer right along with the unrighteous for their unrighteousness. He could have presented like a victim, but instead, if he'd ever had those feelings, he'd move past them. And I wanna encourage you in this because oftentimes we can play the victim card. We can get caught in the cycle of self-pity, but I think that we would avoid a lot of our depression, a lot of our anger, a lot of our frustration, if we just thought about ourselves less. Habakkuk saw the devastation, but he just trusted, God will see me through. 
In the book of Job, there's this humorous moment. It's not a funny book. It's not light reading. But at the beginning of the book, as Job is going through all of these terrible things, his wife comes out to him and she gives him counsel. She says, I have an idea. Why don't you just curse God and die? Her theory was if you just curse God right to his face, he's going to be forced to off you. He's going to kill you. So just curse God and die. That was her counsel to her beloved husband. But I love Job's reply. He asked a question. He said in Job 2 verse 10, should we accept only good from God and not adversity? What a question. How searching. There was a pastor in the 17th century in France named Francois Fenelon and uh, Some books that he wrote are still in circulation today. And he said that there are two kinds of people. He said, some look at life and complain of what is not there. Others look at life and rejoice in what is there. And Habakkuk was forced into a situation where a lot was taken from him. A lot was no longer there, but he is going to rejoice in the God who is there in the midst of all this calamity. Now, some of you might be singing a song or about to sing a song or have just sung a song similar to Habakkuk's song. It probably has different lyrics. You weren't worried about cattle and fig trees and olives. Uh, But the tone, the mood, the melody might have been the same. Perhaps your song had lyrics like, when the addiction is resurfacing. Lord, I will trust in you. Or when the marriage is floundering, or when the career is flattening, when the church is capitulating, when schools are pronouning, when the teenager is spiraling, when the health is fading, when inflation is skyrocketing, Lord, I will rejoice in you. You see, there's a level of trust in God that is able to endure devastation. And Habakkuk has gone through that. You see, God, he's been tested for thousands of years through wars and famine and disease and downturn. He is able. He has proved himself time and time again. He's good in the midst of all of these things. And Habakkuk has come to that conclusion. So the first part of his faith or trust is that it endures devastation. But the second thing I want you to consider is how Habakkuk's trust enabled him to find joy in God. His trust enabled him to find joy in God. Look at verse 18. He said, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, this statement from Habakkuk is clearly the only reason why he was able to have a trust that endured devastation. It's because he, in the midst of that devastation, found his joy in God. He was not content to merely endure the hour of distress. No, he wanted to pursue God in the midst of all that chaos. Devastation had come, but he would rejoice in God. In fact, if you look at the first words of verse 16 and 17. There are great words to set our mind upon. He said, though 
these things happen in verse 16, yet I will rejoice in the Lord in verse 17. Though this is the experience, yet I will focus completely upon him. And who was Habakkuk going to focus on, get his joy from? He said in verse 17 that he would take joy in the God of his salvation. That's how he thought about God. God is my savior. God is the one who saves me. He need sung of God's salvation in the past, earlier in chapter three, when he thought about how God had delivered them in the past from their slavery in Egypt, but he's also confident because God has made him a promise that one day he was going to save them from their Babylonian captors. So he's saying, God, you did it before you're the God of my salvation, and you'll do it again, you're the God of my salvation. Look, we sing the same song today. We look back to the cross of Christ and say, thank you for saving us. You are the God of our salvation. But we also look forward to his promise that he is coming again to rescue us from a broken place and time, saving us forever, the God of our salvation. This is how we in the New Testament era know God. And because he's the God of our salvation, our conclusion is that nothing can separate us from him, even chaos like Habakkuk described. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, I picture him like a miner going into a cave, seeking out the vein of gold that has been reported to be inside. That's what the book of Romans is. It's Paul putting on his minor hat and exploring the gospel, searching out every last vein and implication and truth of the gospel. And that's what he did for the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And do you know how he concluded after he studied, researched, thought about, taught, and wrote of this great gospel? He concluded this way in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He said, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Habakkuk had come to that same conclusion. Though I'm going through all of this, God is still the God of my salvation, and I'm going to pursue him. A few weeks ago, Christina and I were out on a date together, and we went down to Asilomar Beach to uh, watch the sunset, but when we got there, we quickly realized that the sunset was really not the cool thing to watch on this particular night. It was one of those nights recently where the winds were howling, and the ocean was churning like crazy, and so what was happening there at the rocky shoreline near Asilomar where these huge waves were just crashing against the rocks. It was like fireworks exploding in the sky and it seemed like each new uh, wave was higher and bigger than the previous one. And we were just sitting there watching it. It had been a long time since I'd seen waves that big crashing against those rocks in person. But as we were watching, I looked out at one moment a little bit further and I saw a buoy that was just out past the rocks, past some of the waves. And I assumed that it's 
chained down to the ocean floor somehow. And that buoy, though it wasn't going anywhere, it was tossed all over the place. There would be long seconds where it wasn't even visible, I assume submerged underneath the water. It was going back and forth and bobbing and reeling. It was like a rodeo star riding a bucking bronco. I mean, it was just hanging on for dear life. And I think for a lot of believers, the trials and pains of life are like that. I just gotta hang on for dear life because eventually the storm will subside. But Habakkuk had come to a place where he was no longer tossed to and fro by the storm, though the storm was still there. He had now transcended the storm. He'd risen above it and gone straight to God. He was rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of the storm. To the Philippian church, Paul the Apostle said in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, you and I both know people who have lived, it seems, the charmed life. And if they were to come to us and say, rejoice in the Lord, always again I say rejoice, you might be tempted to say to yourself, well, easy for you to say. But the Philippian church knew of Paul from the very outset as a man who suffered deeply, suffered deeply for the gospel. One of the first experiences they'd had with this man, he had been thrown into prison, beaten wrongfully, and in the middle of the night was singing songs of praise and thanksgiving to God when an earthquake shook the prison and the gates were open, the shackles fell off, and the Philippian jailer was then saved. They knew of Paul as a man who could rejoice always, rejoice at all times. So coming from him, it means a lot. Rejoice in the Lord Always, he said. Again, I say rejoice. And I think it's a statement that really only a Christian can say. Because always, no matter what we're facing, the cross is true. So we always have a reason to rejoice in our God. This level of trust, it finds its joy in God. Habakkuk demonstrates this. He has this inner peace that doesn't depend on his outward prosperity. And this brand of joy, it's available to every one of us because it's based not on circumstances, but on a person, on God himself. And since he always is, and his cross is always true, we can find our joy always in him. Augustine prayed this way in his private prayer journal that we now have access to. He said, this is happy life, to rejoice in your presence and through you and because of you. This life is the actual happy life. There is no other kind. A couple of years ago, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin came out with what I think is one of the uh, best books for Christianity over the last decade or so. It's a book called Questioning Christianity, and I'd encourage every, every one of you to read it. And she just takes different challenges that culture is bringing against Christianity and in a masterful way she responds to each one of these challenges. And 
In her opening chapter, she responded to the question, aren't we better off without religion? Many people, of course, are making that claim, citing dangerous or harmful things that have been done in the name of religion in the past, thinking that if we could expunge ourselves of religion today, we'd be better off. Now, she responded to this charge in a lot of ways. She wrote a big chapter about it. But one of the things she did was quote an unbeliever who is a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health who presented research that, quote, suggests that those who regularly attend church services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. And then she went on to point out that one of the reasons for this outcome is that believers can really be happy in any circumstance. And Habakkuk and many others like him have discovered that level of knowledge in God, impacting him in this positive way. So as believers, I think we have to fight for this confession, fight to believe the right voices, the ones that tell us that true satisfaction is found in God. Here's a prayer from pastor author Eugene Peterson in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is about the Psalms of Ascents in the middle of the Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134. He said, God, deliver me from the liars. They smile so sweetly, but lie through their teeth. Rescue me from the lies of advertisers who claim to know what I need and what I desire. From the lies of entertainers who promise a cheap way to joy from the lies of politicians who pretend to instruct me in power and morality, from the lies of psychologists who offer to shape my behavior and my morals so that I will live long, happily, and successfully, from the lies of religionists who heal the wounds of the people lightly, from the lies of moralists who pretend to promote me to the office of captain of my fate, from the lies of pastors who get rid of God's commands so you won't be inconvenienced in following the religious fashions. Rescue me from the person who tells me of life and amidst Christ, who is wise in the ways of the world and ignores the movement of the Spirit. Habakkuk had come to that place. He would not listen to anyone else. He knew that his joy was found in God alone. Okay, but the last thing I want to consider today about Habakkuk's trust is that it gained him the strength to overcome. Uh, this is the conclusion of everything that he said. It's probably my favorite verse in the whole book. He said in verse 19, he said, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. All right, so Habakkuk is ending now his book in this place of total strength. Now there's a bit of a contrast here in the strength that he says that he now, now has from God. Uh, you might remember that last week we concluded with verse 16. You could see it there right in your Bibles. He described his body after he'd had an encounter with God. He said that his legs and his body trembled, his lips quivered, that there was rottenness in his bones. He is not describing himself in verse 16 
as a man who is strong. But here, after encountering and turning to God, he confessed, but God has made me strong. And not only is this strength in contrast to how Habakkuk used to feel, but it's in contrast to the Babylonian armies. Way back in chapter one, a few weeks ago, maybe hard to remember, but when God spoke to Habakkuk about the Babylonian invasion, God said in chapter one, verse 11, their own might is their God. In other words, the Babylonians worshiped their military power. They had military strength and they worshiped that power and strength. For Babylon, strength was God. But for Habakkuk, what does he say? He says, no, for me it's the other way around. Strength is not God. God is my strength. And the strength that God gave Habakkuk made him into someone different than before. He is now able to ascend the heights of victory. I, I love the analogy that he uses. He says, it's like God gave me a mountain deer's muscular frame and sturdy feet. He, he shaped me into someone who could handle the rugged terrain that God said we were entering into, to rise above the chaos and get to the safety of the high places. God had transformed his man. Uh, I grew up in the 90s, so I'm a, I, I am, I will admit, a fan of the Matrix movie franchise. And uh, I don't, Pastor Matt was being kind of vague about the family movie night. He didn't say what movie was gonna be played, so maybe it's the Matrix, I don't know. Probably not, not really kid appropriate, but in the first movie, Keanu Reeves, who is the most like deadpan actor you've ever seen, not very many facial expressions happening, uh, he plays Neo, who's this messianic figure who is supposed to be the chosen one to deliver humans from their machine captors. Uh, they find Neo, uh, but to be able to do what he's going to do, he needs to have skills that he doesn't previously have. He has to enter into the machine world and defeat them from the inside out. And so they have this way of connecting him to a chair, connecting him to computers, and uploading into his mainframe skills and abilities that he did not previously have. So there's this one iconic scene where he's lying there, and in a matter of seconds, they're uploading thousands of fighting styles into his body. And the iconic line happens when he comes to, he wakes up, he looks around the room, and he says, I know Kung Fu. That's the big line, I know Kung Fu. Well, here, at this moment, Habakkuk is saying that he's turned to God, he's heard God's answer, he's walked with God, and now he knows Kung Fu. He wasn't strong, but now he is. He couldn't do this before, but now he can. God has given him sturdy feet and the cardiovascular system that was needed to ascend the high hills. He is weak no more because God has produced this in his life. Uh, each year, my family and I, for I think 15 or 16 years now, we've been going up to Lake Tahoe late in the summer, so we've got another month or so, and then we'll get up to the lake for a couple of weeks. 
just enjoy each other and God's creation. It's a special place for us. Um, but one of the things that I used to do more often while we were there is I would find different trails and mountain peaks to try to run. I used to be more into it than I am today. But a lot of cyclists and runners, they use this app called Strava. And Strava is like a lot of apps that are out there. It tracks like where you went, how fast you went, your heart rate, different things like that. But one feature that they have that is kind of addictive is this segments feature. And what these segments are is they find places that are popular where lots of people have ridden their bike or lots of people have hiked or lots of people have run. And they tell you who did it in the least amount of time. And they create these various leaderboards. Well, there's this one mountain in Tahoe called Mount Talak on the south side of the lake. And I used to love to each year try to once or twice uh, summit that mountain. And in the months leading up, I would get on those leaderboards and I'd start seeing who is the king of the mountain this year. I knew that I wouldn't be able to be the fastest guy up the mountain, but I thought maybe I could crack the top 10. And if I couldn't crack the top 10 for the year, maybe I could crack the top 10 for the month. And if I couldn't crack the top 10 for the month, maybe I could crack the top 10 for the month in my age and gender category. And if I couldn't do it for my age and gender category, maybe my weight class, or maybe that week, or maybe if it, if it came, push came to shove, top 10 that day. <laughs> but in preparation, I knew that I couldn't just walk the coastline. I had to try to run some hills in our area to try to train and get my body to be able to do that kind of thing. Without training, I would never be able to have a decent time. Here, what Habakkuk is saying is that he has been trained by God. The conversation that they'd had together between man and God, between the Lord and his prophet, hadn't changed God at all, but it had changed Habakkuk dramatically. Because he brought his problem to God, because he took the time to hear God's answer, because he processed God's answer, because he waited to hear God's promise, and because he had an encounter with the living God, he was trained to be able to do something he'd not previously been able to do. He could get up the mountains of difficulty on into victory because God had changed him from within. He was made fit to go high. You see, this book, it begins with a man at the lowest of lows. He struggled to understand how God's people could be as bad as they were. They'd rejected God as their leader, as their Lord, as their king. But then Habakkuk went even lower when God told him, the solution to their spiritual apathy, that people even more wicked than them would come to attack them, that they'd be driven into a time of slavery in a nation far away. This news sank Habakkuk further into the slew of despond. That's the beginning of the book, but it ends with this man up on the mountain heights. If there's no fruit, there's no flocks, I'll be unmoved, he says, because God is my joy. God is my strength. God had told him to live by faith, and now he's living by it. He's filled with faith. 
What I want to say as I wrap up this series on Habakkuk is that as students of this prophecy, we all have a decision to make. Will we walk by sight or will we walk by faith? To walk by everything that we hear or read or witness, walking by sight, it's like trying to run through quicksand. The more you move, the more entrenched you become, the more you're exposed to it, the more stuck you become. And I think a lot of us have had that experience. Every day, it seems, brings a fresh onslaught of news and reports that can draw us deeper down into frustration or anger or despondency. But to walk by faith, to trust that God is at work and is enough for us no matter what, is like walking on the mountaintops. When you get there, the air is fresh, the water is pure, the views are amazing. But we have a choice, quicksand or mountaintops, sight or faith, people or God. Where will you choose to set your eyes? One way to diagnose where your eyes are set is by listening to yourself when you are most comfortable with people and sharing your heart. What bubbles out? Is it depression? Is it fear? Is it anger? Is it a rehashing of the planet's broken people doing broken things? Is it a shocked and befuddled retelling of the old story of the fall and depravity of man? Or is it faith and hope and joy? Is it a retelling of God's glorious kingdom story, a redeeming God doing redemption things? Is it a calmed and soothed retelling of the old story of God's rescue and cross, filled with confidence that the story is not yet concluded, that God is not yet done? I think that every day, perhaps multiple times each day, we have to join Habakkuk. We have to go through the whole process that, we, that he went through. We have to present the problem as we see it. We have to listen to God's even shocking replies. We have to sit with it for a moment. We have to hear of his future, what he will do. We have to be impressed again with who he is so that we can say, God, no matter what unfolds, I trust in you. We might need to do this every day. We might need to do it multiple times each day. But when we do, when we depart with Habakkuk from the quicksand of hopelessness and climb into the mountains of trust, what we'll discover is that that's where Jesus is, patiently redeeming and waiting and working, fulfilling, as it says in Ephesians 2, verse 10, the plan of God for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So each day, When the quicksandish discouragement begins to seep in, present the problem to God, wait for his response, praise him, and get back to trusting God again. Because what God announced 
to this ancient prophet is still true today. The righteous will live by his faith.